Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Shireen Ghaffari, a reporter for Recode. I'm filling in for Peter Kafka today, and I have here with me Anna Wiener. Anna is a contributing writer to The New Yorker, a former techie, and an author of Uncanny Valley, a new memoir about working in the tech startup industry. So I'm a huge fan of your writing from when your essay in the magazine N Plus One first came out uh, about what it's like to sort of be an everyday tech worker. And that was back when I was working at a tech startup as well, and I could really relate to it. It went viral within uh, my tech startup, and I know many others felt the same way. And now you've come out with a book um, that was adapted from that essay, right? So could you tell us just a little bit more about yourself and how you describe your book? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so curious about your background now. I'm like ready to turn the table. Um, I started working in the tech industry in early 2013, had a brief stint at an ebook startup, um, and then moved out to San Francisco, worked at an analytics company, and then an open source uh, startup. I'm not using the names. I don't use them in the book. I'm happy to. It's not a secret. <laughs> it's just a stylistic choice. I've gotten used to referring to them in that way. But uh, yeah, I come from a sort of from a publishing background. I have a, a degree in sociology. I'm probably an unlikely figure for a Silicon Valley tech worker, but um, these are the times we live in. <laughs> so, so now I've sort of found myself back on the outside writing about that world. Yeah, and I think what was really interesting and new about your writing to me, uh, and same with the book, is that it's a very different perspective about working in tech than the mainstream depictions that we've seen uh, in media. It's not about someone who uh, overnight becomes a billionaire or about this hero's journey of, of starting a company. It's about what it's like to really uh, be in the rank and file and be on the customer support team. Is that right? Customer support? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so can you talk a little bit more about about that and the perspective that you were coming from and why how it may be different than than sort of what we think of when we think of what it's like to work in glamorous, fabulous Silicon Valley? I'm not sure what isn't glamorous or fabulous about <laughs> my book. <laughs> um, sure, I think that you're exactly right, that much of the writing about Silicon Valley has historically been triumphalist or has been management philosophy or these stories about young Stanford dropouts who build something huge. I think that um, these are stories that are often told on the terms of the industry itself, and these are narratives that we're really starting to chip away at in the last few years. Um, but I do think for a long time it largely went under-scrutinized and perhaps even slightly unchecked. Yeah, and so tell us a little bit about why you 
came to Silicon Valley from New York, you were working in the publishing industry on the East Coast and from the East Coast. And what what made you want to move out? I was working in book publishing and was sort of looking around and trying to figure out what my place in that industry might be. And I wasn't seeing a ton of opportunity or a ton of mobility. And I heard about this ebook startup that seemed like the future. And when I joined, it was just a culture that was completely intoxicating to me. Everyone had so much latitude and they were so excited and they had a ton of money. And the concept of a company that just had a ton of money to, to experiment and to hire is not something that you come across in the publishing industry. So I just really got caught up in the culture of it, this feeling that anything was possible and also this feeling that there was a future. And especially, I'm 32, and so I graduated from college in 2009, and the economy was a nightmare, (laughs) and the job market was a nightmare. And I felt in tech that, that this was where everything was going, and I wanted to be a part of it. It felt suddenly like there was a sustainable future and not just one, but but many. That was really what was most appealing to me. Right, and I think the book does a great job of describing the zeitgeist of what it's like to work at a quickly growing venture-backed startup where it feels like the sky is the limit and 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 there's all kinds of sort of perks. And, and I think you describe it as uh, something like a, a camp, a summer camp at some point. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about what that was, what that appeal was once you started working there? A lot of these companies, at least the ones that I worked for, are they have an employee base that's incredibly young. And so you're in an office working for people who are incredibly young, surrounded by people about your own age, and you know, mid-20s, early 20s. And there's just this sense of energetic camaraderie, and uh, it feels, it's very fast-moving. If you're working at a venture-backed startup, the aim is to grow as quickly as possible. And so... There's always more work than anyone can handle. There's always this feeling that you needed to hire seven people yesterday and you're interviewing three (laughs) tomorrow and that it feels like you're really working to get something off the ground. And I think that that sort of momentum feels incredible, especially coming from an industry that happens to move a little bit more slowly and is sort of designed around a very time-intensive process. But I think that the summer camp feeling is just one that I got from things like, I don't know, one of the team building activities we did at my first company in San Francisco was the scavenger hunt. And the concept of an adult scavenger hunt is like one that I think is actually sort of embarrassing. But at the time, it felt, uh, it just sort of felt like we could get away with anything. It felt like you could get drunk with your executives who are younger than you and run around the city and kind of terrorize everyone, but it was okay because you were having fun and you were building this thing. And I got swept up in that, although I have to say that particular instance, I sort of felt it felt it was really fun in in the, in the gather, the space we had all gathered. But then once we got out into the city, I was like, this is deeply humiliating and like disrespectful <laughs> to everyone. And it felt, I don't know, it's just one of those situations where it, it's this insular unit, this sort of insular social group inside the company. And then once you bring it outside, it it doesn't feel right at all. It starts to feel like maybe you shouldn't be getting away away with something. Maybe this is actually offensive to other people's sensibilities. Yeah. And I think that's that's an experience that's universal to a lot of people who work at startups in the moment. There's a sense, a strong sense of camaraderie and drinking the Kool-Aid. And and what was the slogan at, at your company? It was an unofficial slogan, but the term that we all bandied about was being down for the cause. 
down for the cause. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, that that's kind of all but an official slogan at, at many, <laughs> many other um, tech companies. And, and but then removed kind of from the context or over time, you can grow disillusioned with it. Right. And, and that's, you know, not to give away the book, but can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, a little bit more of the critical perspective that, that you also came to have on some aspects of tech culture? Sure. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a spoiler that I grew <laughs> disillusioned with this industry or my work in it. I think for me, it was sort of a slow burn. I was working at a data analytics company when the Snowden revelations came out, and that was something that I didn't quite process in the moment, but gradually started to understand that this was part of a much bigger ecosystem and economy around data collection and the different ways that could be abused. Um, I was also sort of alarmed by the extent to which employee permissions were kind of a secondary concern, um, tertiary concern, I don't know. And I think that my disillusionment began inside the company, actually, uh, on an interpersonal level, where I started to feel like it didn't make sense to me that we should all be down for the cause when actually the incentives weren't really there, that it was more of an emotional incentive in this particular company to let the startup consume your life. And I think also, you you know, you see people who are 24 or 25 running a company, they've never really had any professional experience. You've never had any professional experience. Things can get really bad really quickly. And um, I think that from there, I started to question the way the industry was designed and um, the different interests of the people who just, I guess if you sort of start to trace the interests of the money involved. Um, but yeah, I think I think it began with sort of the Snowden and the office culture stuff. And then I just began to get a little more critical distance and my disillusionment sort of ballooned um, around the 2016 election, especially. Right. Yeah. I think the 2016 elections were a turning point for a lot of people, but um, particularly in tech, which ha- has for so long been thought of as apolitical or, uh, you know, the workforce of tech pe- employees that they just want to kind of do their code, check in, check out, heads down, and, and not get distracted by the real world. I think that attitude has definitely changed. And I want to get more to current events mm-hmm. um, and tech culture in the real world and what you think about it in the, in the second half of this. But just going back to your experience and what you chronicle in this book, can you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, you talk about having this child boss that you were saying, you know, these these 20-something-year-old people, sometimes younger than you, who are managing you. And you know, can you describe a little bit more about what that was like? And I know there were a couple of very kind of uncomfortable meetings or situations that you were in. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. It's a very strange culture in which to learn how to be a professional, which for a lot of people, this was where they were learning to become a professional. Um I think on the one hand, it can be really exciting, right? You're sitting at a table or standing at a table next to the CEO of a company and people who you assume are, you know, powerful, people who are powerful, who you assume know what they're doing, have given this person $12 million to make his idea come to life. Like, that's thrilling. And that sort of level of casual interaction can be very exciting as well, where you're you know, it, it, you're you're hanging out with your CEO. You're like drinking beer with your CEO. You're going to Tahoe with the whole company. I mean, I, I just think that the youthfulness is a really big part of of this culture. But with youthfulness, tends to come a certain level of inexperience. 
And I think that the irreverence of the industry, which is really appealing to a lot of young people, <laughs> is also kind of its downfall. So at a certain point, it started to feel like the things that were, what had once made working at this one company in particular so exciting and so sort of enchanting in a way were actually the same things that would contribute to what would make it a miserable place to be. And I think that working for people who are kind of figuring out as they go along is a big part of that. Um, at the same time, I have a lot of sympathy for someone like that. I, It was very hard for me to be on the receiving end of certain, what I would call like um, highly unprofessional and inappropriate managerial strategies. <laughs> but I I also feel for this kid. I mean, he, in my mind, he was a kid, which I realize is probably being a little forgiving of someone who has been given an incredible amount of money and power and free reign. Um, I sort of tend to try to shift my blame toward the larger picture, toward the structure that's in place that empowers certain types of people or has this mythology around a certain type of hard-headed college dropout with a technical background. But I don't come at this from a place of contempt at all, especially not toward someone who I think really got wrapped up in a system that he was not entirely prepared to be a part of. I think looking at the system's view is a little bit oh, a way of forgiveness in a way. Right. And I think the book does a really good job of um, being honest about your attraction and to, to tech and the, the exhilarating aspects of it and um, how in some ways it can be very rewarding, right? And it was for you in a way that, that previous jobs maybe weren't while it had problematic aspects as well. And you mentioned the Tahoe trip, and I think that's one part of tech work culture that is a norm but isn't talked about a lot is these kind of work trips that you do <laughs> in startups. Oh my God, and you can be in very culture. close quarters with, um, you know, your CEOs and you're all renting a house in Tahoe together. And there was one scene on that trip that really stuck out to me that was they had the engineers who are, you know, the top dogs of the companies, right? Some of the most valuable employees, very hard to recruit. They had these engineers doing the what's considered low level or easy to do work. Can you describe a little bit about that and, and your what was happening and then your realization about it? Sure. I could spend like six hours talking to you about offsite culture. It's so strange. There's like a new trend every year. People take their teams to do like improv comedy or to do axe throwing. Um, <laughs> I feel like I got it easy with the adult scavenger hunt. Um, the Tahoe trip was probably my... It's so funny, it was probably my ninth month on the job, but it felt like I'd been there for, I'd known everyone for a decade. So we went to Tahoe as a company, I think in February, and the company had rented different condos on, in the same sort of development. And one night everyone was, had gathered and we were eating pigs in a blanket and the support team, you know, just because your company's taking a vacation doesn't mean that your customers don't have questions. So support on any at any of these companies is going to be working throughout an offsite. And... So we were working in the social, in the condo where everyone had gathered, but it it was a little unequally distributed, I guess. Um, and the CEO came in and said that the engineers would be taking over support as a gift to the support team. And this, at the time, sort of felt like a relief initially. Like, good, they should they should be doing <laughs> this work. Well, we're, you know, we're going to eat pigs in a blanket and, like, drink some beer while the engineers try to figure out how to help our customers with the product that they built. But actually, the suggestion there, the implication might have been that the job was so low level that anyone could do it without any experience. And actually, explaining a product is very different than building a product. 
And the people who build a product sometimes aren't the best at explaining it because they have to get on this micro level and sort of intuit what someone's struggling with. And it, it just takes practice. But I think that it was it represented this division between what are considered technical and non-technical employees. And I think non-technical as a term is often used as sort of coded in a gender and race. Uh, there, there are different racial and gender encodings in that. But I think that in the industry overall, you have these highly valued, like you said, hard to hire, hard to please uh, engineering uh, employees. And then you have everyone else whose work, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm speaking only from my own, my own perspective. I suspect that if they could have automated us, they would have. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a certain level of friction to have it be a human interaction. And so support is often spoken of, as, and it was at this company, as a secret weapon. But at the same time, it sort of felt like a secret weapon that like, maybe could be handed off to anyone at any time. So I don't know if that's getting at sort of what you were, what you were asking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's kind of this division, right, uh, of labor between technical and non-technical employees. And it's about, it ends up being about much more than can you code or not. And it trickles down into sort of how you're treated at the office and what how how valued certain work is over others. Sounds like you have experience with this. Oh yes, <laughs> well, uh, both in my work and you know, and now writing about mm-hmm. about tech companies and, and labor issues at tech companies. Mm-hmm. But one other thing I want to get to is just more around tech culture, um, and this is a topic that everyone loves to read and write about. But I think you had a really uh, again honest and and fresh perspective on it. Can you tell us a little bit more about what what about uh, tech and San Francisco working culture surprised you and most was new to you when you started this journey? I mean, everything was new to me. I had worked at this company in New York for a minute, but it had three founders. And when I joined one other employee and when I left two other employees. So moving to San Francisco, the, the culture was all brand new to me. I think it was the how casual everything was, the license people had to sort of be themselves, good and bad, right? Um you want people to be themselves to a certain level. Um, I think the fusion of work and life, I really wasn't prepared moving out to San Francisco to have this company be my whole life. And this this one's on me. Like, this is my own foolishness, but I sort of thought, I'll move out to California, I'll have this adventure, it'll look good on my resume, I'll have this day job, and I'll do other things in the evenings. If you're joining a 20-person startup, like, that's not the game. <laughs> <laughs> you no. are free time does not belong to you. And actually, as someone who, you know, didn't know anyone in San Francisco really, I was totally, totally welcome to that. It felt like a social world bundled into a professional world. And as like a lonely 25-year-old, that seemed great. I really liked my coworkers, so that helped. But I think that, that that fusion was really surprising to me. And also how happily I, you know, I wore it. I I felt very proud of where I worked. I, I think I write quite a bit about this in the book, just that feeling of affiliation and feeling like, you know, this company that I worked for was doing very well. We had like street cred. And only in San Francisco can you have street cred for working at an analytics company. So, <laughs> um, you know, it feels nice to be part of something. And I think I had felt that in book publishing in a certain way, but I also felt like I would have to claw my way, you know, over my peers to do well in that industry. Whereas in tech, there's sort of room for everyone. Not everyone. There should be room for everyone. Well, yeah, I mean, going back to your case, um, even with your kind of grievances or maybe some of your questioning of some aspects of the culture of the office you were working in, you were also able to progress very quickly, right? And and you um, moved up kind of the ranks, right, at, at the companies you were working for. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and how you you actually ended up learning some technical uh, skills, right, in order to kind of advance and what that that progression was like for you? Right, and I think that that's part of what the non-technical technical divide, why that's a bit erroneous. Because to work at any of these companies, you need to be technical to a certain level or you need to learn it. I learned enough to be able to help engineers. Engineers were the customers for this particular product. Actually, for the, the two companies I worked for in San Francisco, engineers were the were the customers. Um, I learned enough to be able to help them, but it's a sort of funny dynamic where I don't know that those skills would have been easily converted into skills at another company. It's, it's very company and product specific. Um, but I had a, basically I had a mentor who became a friend at this company who was on my team who just was incredibly patient and was like, okay, you don't know how the internet works, but I'm going to teach you. Um, and <laughs> I still don't fully understand how the internet works, but I have a better grasp on it. But I do think it's just, it's an industry where people will take a chance on you and throw you in the deep end and you they assume you'll figure it out and then you figure it out. And I think one of the bigger problems right now in tech coverage and in tech culture is this idea that it's a highly rarefied highly skilled, highly, you know, it's it's a black box, I guess. And I feel like it's really important to be able to demystify this a little bit, that like a sociology major with um, no relevant work experience can go in and figure out enough to be making a six-figure salary eventually. Like that, to me, is not a narrative I hear a lot of. It's more like, you know, there's this uh, emphasis on on technical skills that I think actually many of them can be learned on the job unless you're actually a full-time developer. Right. You don't have to have a computer science degree or be an expert coder to get, you know, a good job at some of these tech companies if you know sort of enough of of the technical language to communicate and, and you know, you're at a startup that's small and there's lots of opportunities. I mean, in some ways, this sounds like a dream for a lot of people. And, you know, I think a lot of people will ask, well, well what didn't you like about it? Um, <laughs> and I think there's a lot of a lot of things in the book that play into sort of what you don't like about it. But one thing that I do want to touch on is gender and sexism and as, you know, as well as other sort of aspects of what, why wasn't this the dream for you? I do think that these are dream jobs for a lot of people. I also think that they could be a lot better. I mean, I think that the there's so much in place in the tech industry for these workplaces to be dream workplaces. But I feel a certain level of despair that if they can't, that if this industry isn't going to sort it out, I don't know who is going to sort it out because the resource, resources are all there. Um, it wasn't a dream situation for me. I mean, I, I burnt out really quickly, or not even that quickly. I burnt out after this first job in San Francisco. I'd been there, I think, about 18 months, and I just felt like I was being weirdly bullied by executives and that my skill set that actually I think was quite valuable for them was not being valued in the way that it should have been, and I was taking on projects and not getting paid for them, and um, we're not getting compensated for them in a way that I felt was fair. And I also just, I just wasn't sure what I was doing anymore, why I was doing this, why I was down for the cause. It wasn't reflected in my compensation or equity. It wasn't reflected in my mental health. I started to wonder if I actually was down for this cause of making this company really sore. And I wasn't their best employee. I mean, I, I think in part because it was a technical product and I wasn't a highly technical person. I'm not trying to, I'm, I don't feel like a victim in this situation. I just think it ultimately wasn't, the incentives weren't aligned, as you might say. <laughs> um, 
So, but when I left that company and got another job at another startup, I really just wanted to take a break. Um, and I figured I would like put my ambition on the back burner for a few months. And there was sort of a track for management that I was supposed to be on. And I just sat on the sidelines and then stayed on the sidelines, which was great. And for a while, this was a dream job. And then I started to sort of feel like I could be in that dream job situation forever. And I started to get antsy and I just started to want more. Um, and I also had started to write about the tech industry and found that much more engaging and found myself, um, you know, obviously not making as much money and not having the same feeling of momentum, but feeling a lot more interested in my surroundings and in my life um, rather than this feeling I had started to have, which was sort of like a gradual dulling, I think, um, just for me. And I, you know, I, I didn't leave the, the industry until I sold a book and then I had that income and I still have a lot of regrets about that transition. And, you know, every month when I pay my health insurance bill, I sort of wonder what I've done to my <laughs> life. But, um, yeah, for me, I had the privilege to be able to leave, and so I did. And, but I'm, you know, I remain very ambivalent. I think it's a very ambivalent book. Um, you know, a dream job is specific to, to the individual, bearing some structural concerns. But okay, we're going to take a break, and after that, I'm going to ask Anna more about her experience working in tech, and some current events going on in the industry. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Okay, we're back here with Anna Weiner, author of the new book, Uncanny Valley, a memoir about working in tech. 
Anna, uh, I want to pick up where we left off and talking about not just your experience working in tech, but some of the bigger kind of social dynamics at play, uh, working in the Bay Area at a specific time at a quickly growing, two quickly growing startups. Um, and one of those big dynamics is sort of uh, the changing nature of the city of San Francisco and the Bay Area. And I think the book does a great job of, of um, making this juxtaposition between your kind of tech culture and tech bubble life inside the startup and the external realities of living in a quickly changing urban area. Can you talk a little bit more about what San Francisco was like when you moved there and how you saw it change or how you saw it um, in comparison to the tech world that you were in? So I moved to San Francisco in April of 2013. And I think that the city had already changed dramatically. I had visited friends who'd moved there after we graduated from college years prior, and it had felt a little bit more sort of rambling and... um, and it, it felt like it had a city with a lot of secrets and uh, where there was a lot of freedom, too, and space to sort of do your thing and cobble together an income on the side. I think that when I moved there, Uber was just starting to be a thing that I was aware of and Lyft. And I remember, you know, taking a Lyft for the first time and being like, am I honestly going to fist bump a stranger like this is humiliating? <laughs> Who would come up with this? Um, <laughs> and, you know, grudgingly extending my fist and... Um, I think that a lot has changed in San Francisco. It's been really fast. I mean, it's not all because of the tech industry, but I do think that tech has an outsized impact on the city. And uh, it also is sort of this accelerant in a way for all of these problems that I think have been in the running for a long time or have been building for a long time. I think that it's gotten, it's obviously gotten way more expensive. I think that the cost of living in San Francisco has meant you know, obviously a lot of people are moving out. It's not sustainable to have a family there for most people. Um, it's really hard for a lot of people to see a future there. And so when it comes to the tech industry, and obviously this is not like no one's crying for the people in the tech industry, but <laughs> um, but this is, you know, the, the demographic that I'm writing about. And so I don't mean to focus on them to the exclusion of other groups, but I do feel that it's probably what I'm best suited to talk about. Um I think that a lot of people in tech move to San Francisco with the expectation that they'll be there for a couple years, but not for very long. And to be honest, that was my expectation too, although that was more because I'm from New York and I assumed I would be back in New York quickly. Um, I saw it as sort of a, a career accelerant, not a permanent decision. And I've, I've stayed. I still live in San Francisco, and I do feel that I have roots there, and I, I do plan to stay. What part um, of San Francisco do you live in? I live in Bernal Heights. Oh, sort yeah. Sort of past the mission. Yeah. Not as... Intense as the mission, but no, but it's yeah. a you know it's a fifteen minute walk, and then I get into the mission, and I feel like I'm you know strolling through Disneyland Internet or something. There are all of these brick and mortar stores for direct to consumer businesses. There are all of these like salad places. Um, there's a salad place that has a salad lounge. It looks like if you described to someone what the wing was, and they like didn't totally understand it, and they're like, okay, we're gonna like do the wing, but salad, but on like a you know, a 20th of the budget because there's going to be salad dressing everywhere. It's just, it's like, where am I? What am I looking at? Um, there are just all of these spaces. I guess the salad lounge is important to me as a shift, not just because it replaced a long beloved, you know, long running beloved uh, Mexican restaurant, but because it seems like the sort of business that is there to cater to young money there are a lot of these things that are popping up in San Francisco, and to be fair, young money is going to them. So I think that the face of the city is changing really quickly in many parts uh, or in many neighborhoods. 
But at the same time, it's catering to a demographic that is probably transient or self-replenishing in a way. But I, I don't have this, I, I don't have a clear sense of San Francisco pre-2013, aside from a few visits. I think on one of them, I like stayed in the in a hostel in Fort Mason. Like, that's a weird thing to do, but that's what you do when you're in college. And That's a famous <laughs> hostel. A lot of startups have been built at that hospital. No. That hostel, yeah. Really? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. my God, it's, that it's, makes it's, me want to die. It has legends around it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what a nightmare. Uh, well, when I went, it was great, and there was, it, you know, was very beautiful and felt very magical and sort of spooky in a way that San Francisco can feel, I think, because it's so... It's not as dense as cities that I'm used to. <laughs> yeah. I do have a great affection for San Francisco. I, I'm from Brooklyn. I've seen Brooklyn change dramatically. It's very similar. I think it's not as accelerated in Brooklyn in part because it's just Brooklyn's larger. But in San Francisco, it's this really compact city that is uh, every little change ripples out. And it's just also incredibly expensive to start a business. It's like... You don't walk around neighborhoods in San Francisco and think like, well, this is definitely going to get more interesting um, or more affordable. It's, you know, it's the housing crisis is, has been in a slow burn for like, you know, 60 years. <laughs> um, anyway, I don't know. I'm just rambling now. I don't want to get yeah. into housing. I'm in way over my head when it comes to housing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think another, another, you know, kind of continued topic in current events around tech culture is, you know, issues around gender and race and, you know, any kind of really historically marginalized community in tech faces some unique challenges, right? Um, And in your book in particular, I think what stood out to me was how much as you know, you frame some of your relationships with your coworkers in terms of being like a like a girlfriend or like a sister or like a mother uh, and taking on kind of familial roles uh, and maybe not having the space or feeling supported to just be an employee. <laughs> um, and can you talk a little bit about, you know, what it was like being a, a 20-something-year-old woman in a tech company who maybe had a different perspective than a lot of her peers? Yeah, so the company had 20 people, and there were three women. I was the fourth. I tried very hard not to think about it because I felt that the minute I started to think about it, and I sometimes, you know, when I ask people, like, hey, maybe we don't have to use the word bitch in the chat room, like, I suddenly felt like the feminist killjoy, and I was the feminist killjoy, and but that wasn't something that I felt super comfortable inhabiting in that environment. I will say that I feel that I had it pretty good. Um, <laughs> devastating as that will sound, having met and spoken with many women in the industry and worked with many women in the industry and sort of seen what they have dealt with, I feel like I got out easy. (laughs) So my own experience wasn't colored by sexual harassment, although obviously it exists everywhere and sexism is everywhere. I sort of felt it in more career-oriented ways. I felt it when I learned that a teammate of mine had been offered equity when I hadn't for the same job, even though he was younger and had less work experience, but had more a little more technical knowledge, but I was supposed to be his manager in the long run. So that sort of thing feels like I, I'm not quite sure what that comes down to. And I think that other than sexism, um, but I think that it's my nature to, to sort of make excuses for people, which maybe is the everyone's mother, sister, girlfriend side of me. Um, and it actually wasn't till like 2016 I was working on a piece that involved that anecdote that never ended up running. But my um, my editor I was working with was like, 
you keep saying this isn't sexism, but this sounds like sexism to me. And so I think that part of my survival strategy, or it's not survival, but a coping strategy was just to give everyone the benefit of the doubt all the time as much as possible. So I'm sure that I missed a lot because of that perspective. But for me, I just had to distance myself from it emotionally or else I think it would have ruined, you know, five years of my life. But when I learned about certain things that had happened to women that I knew, that was sort of like the peak of my disillusionment. I felt like the industry had failed women on a structural level in a persistent way. I mean, you see men who you know to be sexual uh, abusers in some way or uh, who have assaulted people you know or people you don't know. It doesn't even matter. But you see these men and they recirculate. And they maybe get bounced from one company to another and the you know VCs help them find a, a new spot. Mm-hmm. It feels, um, I can't tell you how dispiriting it feels. It, it feels like it will never end. And I know this isn't a tech-specific <laughs> problem, far from it, but um, it feels like the no-failure perspective gets applied to things outside of what of what that its purview really should be, and so for there's a certain type of person in the industry who cannot fail, but at the same time, it's that sort of, that's what's failing women on the receiving end of it. Yeah, and I think I think it is, and it isn't specific to tech. And um, were you working in tech when the Susan Fowler letter came out? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what that was like? So the Susan Fowler blog post went up in 2017. It's not in my book because I the book ends in 2016. Ah, so, okay. but I did write a piece for the New Yorker website about about that memo and how Susan Fowler was so well positioned to be someone to step forward and in. You know, the the inverse of that is all the different ways the industry will seek to discredit someone. I mean, even in this book, and I'm not I'm not a whistleblower. Um, Susan Fowler is a whistleblower. I'm just writing about culture and about my own experience, but I'm still nervous people are going to try to discredit me, and I assume I've given them all the material. The, all the material's in the book. It's, it's fine. But I assume being non-technical is part of that. With Susan Fowler's case, I think it was she was white. She was in a technical role. She kept records. She kind of built this airtight case. She wrote this blog post that was totally, you know, unemotional, rational, cool-headed. She had everything perfectly in place, and so it was very, very hard for anyone to undermine her. I mean, like, bless her. This is not a criticism. This is, you know, but it's very hard to do. I think if you are not white and you, like, maybe don't have screenshots or chat logs um, or you're in a role that people look down on and you're not, you know, you haven't published... She, she happens to have published books in her technical field. Um, I think all of this made her a reliable narrator to people. But the extent that, that people will go to undermine um, a narrative that isn't convenient or isn't flattering, I think, is pretty impressive. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think her case sort of highlighted a lot of that. Right. And I think, uh, you know, since you left the tech industry, there's been even more people like Susan Fowler stepping up. And uh, again, not all of them sort of whistleblowers per se, but a lot of people who are increasingly calling on tech to be held more accountable to higher ethical standards. Um, And so uh, have you been following kind of the increase in internal tech activism, as I call it, something that I report on all the time, Um, but events like the Google walkout and, you know, we're seeing tech workers say they don't want to build uh, technology for ICE to help that helps deport or 
Oh, I can't people. believe what company that would be coming from. <laughs> right, or push back against working conditions in Amazon warehouses. And so what do you make of all that? And, and was that a part of the culture when you were working in tech or your experience? That wasn't really a part of the culture when I was in tech. I left the industry in early 2018. Um, and I think some of that was starting to, to, to percolate, for sure. At the company that I was working for, not really. Um, people were sort of starting to agitate a little bit for certain things, but... Nothing on the scale that we're seeing now. I mean, I think it's, I'm very impressed by these efforts. I think that the sort of last point of leverage that people have in any sort of reform of the industry outside of external uh, regulation, which is going to, you know, if that happens, it will be incredibly slow. It might not be successful. I think that in an industry that's very fast moving, the point of leverage is it's employees. Employees have a ton of leverage right now. I don't think that they always will, especially technical employees. You know, I think that the workplace culture is sort of oriented toward, or not culture, but the workplace perks at least are oriented toward engineers, and they just have a ton of um, a ton of clout that I think right now is largely going underused. Um, but. I don't know. I, I am excited to see it. I think that doesn't necessarily need to be unionizing, although I am pro-union. But I think any sort of collective action, I've I've seen it in other circumstances that I don't feel that I can talk about publicly. In the book, you know, you have you have some scenes that are I find pretty funny, where the workers are asking for things like a budget to have plants in their home because they're work from home, and uh, you know, there there are demands that really to most of other working people outside of tech would seem ludicrous and probably not garner any sympathy, right? But it's a very entitled culture. <laughs> very entitled. But um, at yeah, the same I mean, time, if you can get your company to buy you a bunch of plants, you know, go for it. <laughs> I support that. Right, right. Power to the to the plant. <laughs> Submit that expense people. report. See what happens. But yeah, there's there's obviously more serious kind of moments of reckoning and happenings in tech and. You know, the 2016 elections, we touched on that before, but I want to get back to that of what you think, what impact that had on tech culture. I think it was a major awakening for people. I think that for me, it marked the end of an era. I don't quite know what this new era is, but I know that something shifted. I think that it has led to a sort of more defensive position on the part of people in the tech industry who suddenly feel like they're having whiplash because the media was so flattering for so long. And kind of gave them a pass and didn't take them as seriously. And now suddenly there's all this criticism flying from all corners. I hope that people are thinking more critically about the work. I I feel that that is true at the rank and file level. I don't know if that's true at the executive level. I feel that at the executive level, this is a marketing crisis or a PR crisis, not an ethical one. Um, I could be wrong. I'd love to be proven wrong. I do think that the election was sort of what brought the world in, you know, and what Suddenly, it was like a spotlight was on the industry in a way that no one was prepared for. Um, and I think we're still untangling that. I don't I don't have a concrete narrative for it. I mean, even in writing my book, I felt that I, in thinking about it in 2017, I really thought things were going to go a particular way, and they didn't. So I'm sort of taking a step back and just watching and seeing what gets made of this. I mean, I really try not to make predictions, especially with respect to Silicon Valley and tech stuff. But... Um, but I think Google Glass is going to come back. I think that <laughs> I, I suspect we will see a sort of a reaction from the industry politically that is um, a response to increased criticism as well as the broader political landscape. 
and I think people are moving farther right. I mean, it's always been this kind of funny libertarian, leftish, you know, libertarian culture. But um, I think we're actually going to start to see more reactionary um, politics coming from tech. And I, I think that that's going to be fascinating and intense and probably a little bit scary. Right. I mean, you have people like Peter Thiel, right, who are, I don't know if he lives in <laughs> San Francisco right, these days. But I think he's in you, L.A. Yeah, yeah. Do you see more, uh, you know, you're very in touch with kind of tech culture and chronicling it, and do you see that more in, in, in the employees that you talk to? The reactionary People who are espousing or? more sort of, um, you know, conservative beliefs mm. and maybe yes. typically in, in Silicon Valley before, San Francisco before. Yeah, I do see a right word turn. Not broadly, but I've seen it in individuals, and I think that there is momentum in that direction. Uh, I don't know, speaking of Peter Thiel, there's a, <laughs> um, his Founders Fund is hosting a conference this spring called Hereticon, which is a gathering of people who have heretical ideas about the world. To me, this just seems like a convocation of reactionaries. But there is this feeling in tech that there are certain people who are being silenced. Mm -hmm. And I think we saw this with the James Damore memo. I think that that's sort of what I mean when I talk about a rightward turn is people who feel that that they're actually in a position of victimhood, um, that they're being picked on and criticized unfairly and I'm feeling bad about just plugging this conference, which I (laughs) have complicated feelings about. I mean, I don't know, go have a conference. I think it's weird. I think that we need a little bit more interrogation of like what's being financed and why. And, you know, I have all sorts of questions about like new and upcoming, up and coming right wing publications and who's funding them. I'd rather not get into that. But, um, but I do think there's some alignment of this, of a right word political perspective and people in tech who feel suddenly like they're being blamed for the world's. I'm curious what your former colleagues think about this book and seeing, you know, some of their experiences maybe reflected in it and and culture at large. Well, the book's not out yet, so most of them haven't read it. (laughs) I'll be curious, too. I've I've gotten some feedback on the N plus one piece. I had a former colleague read the book um, in part, in large part, uh, because I had the, the last company that I worked for in San Francisco had several hundred employees, and I felt like I just wanted to make sure that my perceptions and experiences tracked with a woman of color on the engineering team. I just felt like a lot of what I've written about in that second half is, um, well, it's sort of political. It's about company culture and diversity initiatives, and she and I sat on the same little team of people <laughs> working on some of that, and I just wanted to get a gut check from someone and so that was incredibly helpful to get her feedback and to, that was sort of the, one of the first readers that I had and to have it be someone I'd worked with was really helpful. But I interviewed former coworkers for the book. I think some people won't like it. I think largely it's not going to be terribly controversial among people that I worked with. I think that a lot of what I experienced, other people experienced too, either in the same room as me or um, in their own ways. So... You know, on a whole, I it's so funny. It's like one of the things I want to be most conscientious about in talking about the book is like not to overstate my technical credentials. <laughs> Still, yeah. yeah. It's a... <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I, I'll be very curious to hear what they think. I'm generally people are very supportive. I mean, it's a I 
think this book is pretty gentle. I think I, I tried my very best to err on the side of generosity and fairness, and I hope that comes through. Again, like I'm not coming from a place of contempt. I, I, I don't know, maybe they'll be a little upset that I dragged the scavenger hunt. But um, yeah, I don't know. Have you heard from any of my coworkers? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is... You know, I do reflect back on some of the experiences that I had at working at a startup with my former colleagues. And after it's all said and done, we're sort of like, whoa, we did that? Well, we were a part of, we did that kind of humiliating <laughs> thing on a stage where we all dressed up in team costumes together. and That's summer camp culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we laugh about it. And and, and so, so, yeah, there's, there's, there is a, a cultish aspect of, to tech culture that you don't understand until you're out of it. Yeah. I'm sure people are not going to love that I kind of broke the pact, you know? Like, to your point about it feeling cult-like, you're kind of not supposed to call bullshit on this. <laughs> That's not down for the cause. But So I, I'm sure that in some people's eyes, this is transgressive in a way that's rude. And not just rude, but, you know, traitorous in some way. So... <laughs> And I, you know, I oh, don't... Yeah, I mean, fire the leaker. You know, we hear that all the time, right? That's been a yeah. this rallying isn't even cry a leak. of major tech companies. It's, it's not a leak. <laughs> it's just a chronicle of your experiences. Yeah, it's, but yes. You're allowed to talk about your your life and your workplace experiences. I don't know. I I will be very curious, and I, I, welcome, the, I welcome criticism. You know, I think that um, it's a memoir. It's not a piece of journalism, and... There's a perspective, um, and it's my perspective, and I don't know what people think about me. I, uh, so we'll find out, or, no, or not. People are also sometimes respond to criticism, even if it's gentle, by just going silent. So, and I just I mean that sort of in my experience as a reporter, it's a different kind of writing, but nonetheless. So you're still writing about tech. You still live in San Francisco. Is there something about this ecosystem that you're still drawn to? Oh yeah. I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think the thing that drew me to join the industry is what's drawn me to writing about it, which is the culture and the interpersonal dynamics and the ambition and the kind of culture of failure is really interesting. And this, what pushes someone like you or me or anyone I we worked with to work at a company like this and how I think it just feels sort of like this steroidal capitalism in a tiny city, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, I find that inherently interesting, and it's so—it just feels, like, rich with human drama, and it's also is a very different culture. I don't know. I, I think all the reasons that I liked working in tech and then also f f stopped liking working in tech are the reasons I want to write about it. I find it very interesting in my—the my, place I think I belong is on the periphery observing. I'm most comfortable there, and I'm probably most useful. So—but it is hard. I don't know. I— for people who aren't in tech, it's really painful to see how they are adjusting to this city that they, many of them have lived in for over a decade, you know. And a lot of it, I just sometimes wonder, like, what is this all in service of? And I'm not one of these people who's like, burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel, I feel very conflicted about it. And I think that that, you know, is part of what keeps me writing about it. I do want to get to sort of what the stakes are for people working in tech and how oftentimes, again, because of the Steve Jobs stories and the Mark Zuckerberg stories, uh, we think the stakes are incredibly high to work in tech, that you're going to be 
you know, a billionaire, but what ended up happening for you and many of your colleagues once, you know, the company that you work for ended up selling, right? Did you have that that billionaire techie experience? Oh, yes. I'm a billionaire <laughs> several times over. Right. Uh, <laughs> and what, what, what was the reality of that for you and the realization with that? I mean, it's crazy. I wasn't at the company when it sold. I was at the company when people were speculating that it was about to be sold. And then I left, and then a few months later, it was sold to Microsoft for $8 billion or something like that, $7.5 billion. But at that point, I was like, let's not quibble. Um, And it's crazy. I mean, I think there are people I know who could retire at the age of 34. And good for them, I don't know. It it feels, it. it, I think more than anything, seeing how that money got distributed and seeing who had equity and how much and just the way that all shook out um, really <laughs> underscored the arbitrariness of the industry and of the different types of labor and just how being in the right place at the right time is, you know, that's the life the life-changing <laughs> situation. It's not how hard you work or what you contribute or how kind you are. There's nothing morally superior about anyone just because they got a windfall. But right, it's like you worked as hard as somebody who who was there maybe a year prior and then ended up getting yeah. much more out of it, right? I mean, I don't have an axe to grind. I feel like yeah. I was compensated more than fairly for my <laughs> contributions. And I try to be really clear about the numbers in the book, um, as clear as I can be given what I think some of the restrictions on talking about mm-hmm. how much stock is worth, whatever. Because I do think that for a sort of average employee, it could be life-changing money, but it's not going to be, you're not going to become a multimillionaire. Most early employees don't become that wealthy. At this company, this acquisition was huge. This was a crazy acquisition. And there were people who I would say got incredibly lucky. I, you know, I'm not saying they didn't deserve it, but I do think they got lucky. <laughs> um, I just, I don't generally feel that we should have such a arbitrary concentration of wealth or that sort of concentration of wealth at all. So I obviously have a political perspective on this, but on a from the vantage point of a former employee who's not really tapped into the company, I just felt astonished. And I also knew enough people who had missed their ride, you know, who had, for whatever reason, been pushed out of the company and hadn't had time or the resources to buy their options. There are people I know who missed out on a lot of money. And it in many cases, it wasn't their fault. Um, and so when you think about this, you know, down for the cause, like, <laughs> uh, they were down for the cause and and then dream didn't really pan out. So I don't know. It's, it's I'm probably not the right person to ask because I wasn't there, but this is just sort of my perception from the periphery. Right, and when you see, you know, a company like WeWork Aye. where people <laughs> were, <laughs> were down for the cause for sure um, and sold on this vision and then it ended up imploding. I mean, what do you make of that scenario or, or <laughs> ones like, I think it's been the most dramatic one in recent times, but there's many more, right? Startups that fail. Most startups end up failing. Startups end up failing or they burn out really slowly. You know, they sort of fizzle out um, or they get acquired and, you know, for a little, there's a little... Uh, upside for people, but yeah, I don't know. We work. I feel like where to? Can I like teleport Ellen Hewitt in? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I feel for the employees. I feel for the thousands of layoffs. Right? Is that right? Thousands, yeah. people who lost their jobs because of hubris and inf- like an inflated sense of importance and an inflated sense of world historical relevance. 
I think the most egregious thing, obviously, is that Adam Newman walked away a billionaire. I mean, that's this is sort of what I mean about this no failure mindset. It's like he for sure will fund another company, will start another company or get funding for, I don't know, a venture funder. He's probably already doing it. I don't even I don't know what he's up to. I'm not I haven't followed that story as closely as other people, but um I think that WeWork was also a really different company. It didn't feel people in Silicon Valley sort of disavowed WeWork. Yeah. It's <laughs> um, not tech. Not well, one of us. It's in New York. Sure. It's headquarters, yeah. But is like is away tech, is Everlane tech? The direct to consumer universe is sort of an interesting, strange um tech on te- I don't know, is Uber tech? It's just an app. They're core product doesn't even belong to them. So, well, it can feel like Silicon Valley and tech in general will welcome in these companies when they're doing well and make them part of the tech ecosystem and part of the venture landscape, but when they're not, quickly kind of back away, right? Yeah. Yeah. We work. I've never met her. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even go here. Right. Yeah, I we I don't know. We work was a spectacular crash and burn situation that I feel I'm the last person to offer insight into because it just felt it felt very far away from anything that I, I knew, but but I do think that that, like, he sold a vision. He sold it so hard, and people bought in, and that I relate to. Um, and I think that these grand narratives, it's like, I maybe we'll move into an era where it's okay to just say I have a business, and I want to make money off of my business, and I'm putting a thing into the world, and I don't have to, like, buy up real estate all over the country. Like, that, that for me is the biggest problem underlying all of this, is just this question of scale and um, this ambition toward monopoly, and that's sort of what disruption is, right? It's just a momentum toward monopoly. <laughs> so um, I think a lot of these companies, it's a good product. I just, we don't need as much of it as exists. We don't need right. WeWork summer camp or whatever, music festivals, I don't know. You don't want to put your kids in the WeGrow school. <laughs> it's, I think, closing down. Um, but, okay, one one last kind of company du jour I want to talk about is Away, because you did mention it. Um, and there was a huge, uh, you know, scandal about how people on the customer support team were treated, which, you know, you were in a similar function uh, in tech. And so can you tell us what you make of, of that debacle? Yeah, I mean, I think with support, you have different tiers, right? And again, relates to scale. Uh, you have the kind of cognizant style support team that's outsourced, that's working for Facebook, Instagram, Instagram by Facebook. You have this away support team where it's a direct-to-consumer brand, consumer-facing brand, um, people who are answering customer emails that are probably have to do with billing or shipping. It sounds like that team had to take on a lot of what should have been logis- like logistics concerns and um, fulfillment concerns, which seems unusual for that role. And then you have jobs like I had, which were at software companies that where the core customer base you know, was composed of software engineers and developers. And so... I think that the different tiers of work, like I had a health insurance and a good salary, and the people at Away seemed like they were underpaid and probably had benefits, but were overworked and underpaid. And then the people at Cognizant are underpaid, overworked, don't have benefits, considered contractors. I mean, that company has since shut down, but this is true of of contracting workforces, you know, Google and Apple. Uh, no, sorry, not Apple, just Google. Apple Facebook. also has contractors. Every major yeah. tech company has contractors. That is a matter of fact. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think with Away, the support team just sort of got inherited all the problems of the company and they weren't prepared to deal with them and they weren't well-trained and they also bore the brunt of a COO who was probably in over her head. 
And what was wild to me about that story is how the reaction in Silicon Valley, a lot of people, myself included, I was like, yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> I wasn't excusing it, but yeah. I— but it was didn't seem like an anomaly. No surprises. Yeah. There were definitely some people who were excusing it. And I think these are the same people who tend to to look at something like Uber and say, like, well, Travis was out of control, but they wouldn't have gotten as far as they did without some without a CEO who was a megalomaniac and right. um I've heard that. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a common narrative and I I don't know I don't know how to test the vera- veracity of that. But my thought on that is like, okay, well maybe <laughs> like maybe we don't need it. Maybe there's a way to do this all differently and to have a different outcome. So that's my like shred of optimism. It's it's purely hypothetical and kind of like uh, Pollyanna-ish. But yeah, with a company like Away, it, it did in a, in a sense it sort of served like a referendum on how people felt about tech in general. It's just one of those stories that comes out and like venture capitalists are on Twitter talking to founders, talking to employees, and everyone's fighting with each other. And, like, you sort of want to step back and be like, what are you doing on Twitter? You're a venture capitalist. Like, you're probably a millionaire. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you want to go, like, surfing or something? So, <laughs> kiteboarding, kiteboarding. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I I think if you want to know what's happening at any company, talk to the people on customer support, honestly. They will have they will have the goods. So I don't know if that helps. So that's a good tip for a reporter. All right. <laughs> well, that, it also leads me into my next question, which is, you know, are you, and I think the last one, are, are you optimistic for the future of tech and the future of tech culture specifically? Hmm. I think there's a lot of important work being done in tech in terms of changing the culture. And I trust a lot of the people who are working on that. Um, there's also a lot of window dressing and a lot of, um, a lot of false promises. But I think the biggest problem in tech is accountability. And I think without accountability, that's going to be really hard to get traction on a lot of those initiatives. And, and again, this ties into the sort of worker collective action stuff. But I think it will continue to be incredibly interesting. I do think things will change, but I don't know in what direction. And honestly, if the industry starts to take itself more seriously and starts to kind of acknowledge that these these are businesses, these aren't... <laughs> I don't know. I think I think that if the industry just starts to take itself more seriously, that's not a bad thing. Like some acknowledgement that these are corporate entities seems, you know, I, I, the 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 tech startups that seem to be doing that seem to avoid controversy tend to be in regulated industries. So hmm. um, it's not to say that tech should be regulated. I think that that umbrella is a little too large. Um, but I do think a little. You know, it's, it, people are growing up. We're all growing up. Time for the child <laughs> bosses, as you call them. To, oh, did I say that? Yeah. I think you called one of, someone a child boss. Mm, baby tyrant. Which is <laughs> the child bosses are growing up, right? Yeah. Some of these people who are children are now adults running companies as powerful as nation states. Whoops! What have we done? Yeah, I don't. I thinking about someone like Mark Zuckerberg. He's also he's grown up, but I don't know that we have um, a ton of evidence that he's changed in the way that he sees the world or the way that he sees his product. And I think that that excuse is also often used to defend the industry, so I, feel, I, I don't know that I feel great using it, but that these products are growing up alongside the people who built them, and so these are unprecedented problems at scale that we had, no one in the history of the world has figured out how to solve. And so, you know, my question is always like, well, <laughs> how do we think, you know, these are self-created problems, these are not... Um, these are nothing, none of this is inevitable. But I guess I, I've been saying this, bef- I've said this before, and I've sort of been, when people ask me this question around this book, I guess my, like where I find hope in this or where I find some optimism is that I really don't think any of this is inevitable. And 
we've been treating it like it's inevitable for way too long. Um, and so I think as soon as people start to realize that this is mutable, then things will start to really, you know, really get moving and start to be more interesting. Great. Well, reading your book is is a great first step into sort of understanding, I think, a, a big aspect of tech culture that has gone unexamined. Thank you so much for talking with us. And everyone, I highly recommend you read Anna's book, Uncanny Valley. Thank you so much. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.